Leadership is a responsibility, not a position. Welcome to Leading from the Front with Dr. Gary McGrath, where experienced leaders share their own brand of leadership to help you develop and improve your own leadership capabilities. And now, here's your host, Dr. Gary. I'm Dr. Gary, making good bosses into great leaders with compassionate accountability. Welcome again to Leading from the Front, where leadership is a responsibility, not a position. And today's guest has served as CEO for three successful companies over the past 20 years, raising over $26 million in capital and growing profitable organizations with hundreds of employees and satisfied customers. He is a recognized leader in the outdoor industry, human resource tech industries, and has worked as an entrepreneur in residence for two venture capital firms. He served on the boards for the Entrepreneurs Organization and the American Camp Association. Please welcome the founder and CEO of WorkBright, David Secunda. Hi, David. Hi, Dr. Gary. Such a pleasure to be with you today. I'm excited about this because your experience with Outward Bound in the beginning, we're going to talk about your beginnings, and entrepreneurship and growing companies and culture and all kinds of really terrific leadership topics that we're going to talk about today. I'm, this is going to be cool. I'm equally as excited. It's rare that I get to weave in my outdoor industry and Outward Bound past into the uh, HR tech presence. So I'm ready. I'm with you. Well, I have to say that I've kind of admired the Outward Bound experience from a distance. I remember many decades ago hearing about this and thinking, what a cool idea. What just a great idea to take people out into nature. And I did some Outward Bound work, but that was mostly with the United States Army. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we called that camping. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but different outward experience with the, uh, with the military. But tell me how you got started in that and how that has formed a leadership approach to you and some of the work that you do today with organizations and through your career? Yeah. Well, let me start with the last part of that question as far as how it informs me today. You know, Outward Bound really is an organization that utilizes the outdoor environment for personal development and benefit. So the outdoors is the medium, but the goal is really, you know, personal growth, grit, confidence, those sorts of things that sometimes come more easily. I've heard the the line, um, the outdoors is the lazy teacher's best classroom. And so, uh, you know, the outdoors is a great environment to develop those things, but really the goal is those inner developments at a personal level. I would say that my work as a CEO and even listeners who work in the HR industry overall, it is a similar goal that we are using the work environment to grow and develop our workforce, our employees, and to create environments for them to flourish and consequently do a great job and serve the company well. But there is actually a great metaphor between both of those. And for me, my beginnings in the outdoors were pretty unexpected. I grew up in Los Angeles in a pretty urban setting. My parents were both artists, no experience in the outdoors. So it wasn't something at all that was even on my radar until I was leaving high school, heading for college. And it was one of those types of things where when I discovered the outdoors, and that was initially through some time in California at San Diego State University's outdoor program, 
I felt like I had just returned home. Mm. You know, it was just like such a uplifting, positive space of joy, I would say. And I found that that was not only a joyful place, but I also had skills that were very effective in the outdoors, technically speaking, when it came to rock climbing. And so those things kind of unfolded as I architected my career and initially chose to move into the outdoor industry and outdoor education. And that's eventually where I got a degree. And that led me to my work with Outward Bound when I moved to Colorado. Well, it's interesting just listening to you try to describe how you felt when you found your purpose. You have this feeling of fulfillment, of flow, of joy, of ecstasy, of just, and trying to explain all that in words is hard sometimes, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And and actually, it's interesting. This is one of the things that uh, I work with, with my leadership teams as well, is to be able to um, recognize when you are seeing your employees or those participants you're working with or whatever that audience might be uh, moving into that zone of discovery of their authentic selves. Uh, and it is palpable. Like you, we were sitting here, you know, seeing each other on on video and you saw me almost tasting this experience, returning to it, closing my eyes and remembering it. And that is something, uh, you know, even as employers, we see in our employees and it, and it's, a, it's an opportunity both in the outdoors to recognize that, but also in our employees to look for those moments when that authentic self, that, um, that environment of growth and, uh, and, and just development surges forward into, um, welcome and develop that to the best of your ability. I think about this early experience I had where uh, it was actually one of the first times in the outdoors. It was in Boy Scouts. And it was the first time I was hiking on a trail with a backpack. And we got to this area of, um, of large rocks, like a scree slope, where they were large enough that you actually had to leap from rock to rock. And for me, all of a sudden, this was that time where I found my environment. I had a backpack on and I was a small child. I'm only like five, six now. And at that point I was teeny. And yet I could just jump from rock to rock to rock. And I disappeared. I lost myself. I was immersed in the experience. And I remember the scoutmaster came out to me and just said, wow, you're just like a mountain goat. Like I see this incredible skill and um, joy that you have. And it was, it was like, I had this personal experience, he named it and it kind of sealed the deal right there with like, ah, this is my place. And again, just to draw that experience back, I think as employers, we see that as well. Moments of uh, intuition in the workplace, moments of leadership uh, in this environment that we've been in, in um, just the the uh, various underserved audiences and how they are uh, now, um, you know, really uh, such a central part of our mission as leaders to be more inclusive and, and, and mindful of all of these sorts of experiences offer those opportunities to see people developing their authentic selves and call them out. And that is really what keeps, keeps people at work or participating in programs or whatever it may be. Well, it's interesting. You've covered uh, half of my book. In, in, in just a few minutes on the seven steps of intentional leadership because <laughs> the first the first one on purpose is writing a personal mission statement and one of the work that I've started to do with some of the executives is is getting out of their head and getting out in nature walk walk in the park you know literally you know mm-hmm. and and when people struggle with this when I have uh, some very very intelligent very smart 
uh, CEOs that are struggling with finding and and I like let me say discovering. I like you you use the word discovering your authentic self because it's not something that you have to develop. It's already there. Mm-hmm. We just have to uncover it. We have to go through all these the layers of BS that we've been told our entire life about what we're supposed to do, how we're supposed to do it, the how we're supposed to show up instead of finding who we are and asking the question, who am I? And being able to answer that question, who am I? Mm-hmm. And that's what you're talking about, really, when you talk about your authentic self is being able to describe that, right? Absolutely. And, and you know, it's kind of funny for me to think uh, you know, I'm speaking to you now with the, the role of CEO of, uh, of a company, WorkBright. It's an onboarding company. It's very tactical. It is a uh, onboarding solution that allows employees to do their paperwork more quickly with less friction. And the reason, uh, one of the driving forces that I got into this is in speaking with HR professionals out there, so many of them said to me, you know what, I moved into this industry because I love working with people. That is my unique ability. And then I got into the industry and I realized 80% of my time is administrative, moving papers around. And so I see my job in this company now of allowing people to return to that authentic self to their unique ability by moving those things off of their plate that technology can do better than paper, you know, and uh, than people, I should say, and reducing that friction so that the amount of time that they have to spend in that zone of genius, authenticity, unique ability increases, their job satisfaction increases. But I think the thing that I'm sure you have noticed as well is when people are operating in their jobs, in their uh, authentic self in their unique ability in their zone of genius. It's also of most value to the company. That is where the real benefit occurs to the company. And that takes us to step three, because step three in the seven steps is strengths, strengths, limitations, and grit. And you mentioned grit earlier when you were uh, talking about uh, personal development and outward bound and learning grit and confidence, right? And uh, actually, grit, hard work are is the only the only single thing that can be correlated to success. And, and what uh, research has shown in leadership, it's the same thing. It's, it's, it's being able to not just have grit, but to be able to express it in a way to those around you to let them know that not only do we have grit, but I'm going to demonstrate some hope for the future, that we're going to do this together, that we're going to create the future. And um, to your point around strengths is we call it the wow factor. You know, uh, in finding that that authentic thing, and it's fascinating. So you're in the Boy Scouts. I was in the Boy Scouts. I think we were both Eagle Scouts. Uh, did you make Eagle? I'm sorry. I, th- I, I think did, I did not. I did not. But thank you for guilting me. I uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. A little unfinished business that I, you know, I think it's too late. There's still for me to time. Okay. To- <laughs> There's still time. Get that last mirror. Okay. All right. Okay. <laughs> On it. <laughs> uh, so. Um, I had a similar experience in Boy Scouts, but here's here's the thing, David, is we have to have a lot of these varied experiences to found to find that uh, that zone of genius, to find that wow. And I ask people and I'll, I'll tell you what I what I ask them to do is pay attention to when other people say to you, wow, David, how do you do that? That was amazing. Jumping from rock to rock or doing this. And you go, what's the big deal? I just, I just did it. And you're like, yes, but that's a, that's a talent. And if you take that talent and work hard at it and get the experience and get education, training, mentoring, and coaching, you can be world-class. Yeah. And I, I would even push beyond, uh, you know, 
just listening to asking people as well. Like I do an exercise with folks I work with where they, where I say, you know, take a, a group of 15 people around you, uh, professionals, employees, and, you know, ask these questions that will help them uh, deliver that feedback directly back to you. You know, what do you see as my unique ability? What do you see as this area that I have, uh, you know, superior talent in a never ending thirst for learning? And probably most importantly, where you see me gaining more energy than losing energy. You know, that's another one that I really look for. And then do that same process, as you said, around mission statement for yourself, thinking about those same things. And then to make darn sure you're not only, as you said, developing those areas, which sometimes seems easy because when you're in your unique ability, you have more flow in, in developing those skills, but also to hold on to that part of your job. That's the part that you don't want to use technology to automate, that you don't want to give to uh, a cohort or, uh, you know, or, or delegate away. And once you know and have clarity on what that is, it enables you to really hold on to it with the, 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 the grip that it deserves. Yeah. Yeah. So it's interesting as you were talking about this, it reminded me of something that we use the, the, uh, that I'm, you're probably familiar with the Johari window, mm -hmm. which is looking at what I, what I know about myself, what others know about me, where my blind spots are. And this exercise uh, of, of, uh, this exercise of discovery, uh, with a group of people is to see me in other people's eyes. So that maybe I can see the wow factor from others and help give me some feedback to realize where my, where my strengths are and where my authenticity is. Yeah. Yeah. And I love the last thing that you said early in the process is, is then write it down. Don't just have this as yes. a conceptual piece, but actually put it to paper, put it in a place where you look at it um, and, you know, anchor yourself with that. Yeah. We have to remind ourselves of, of our greatness because we get beat down every day. <laughs> you, know, you know, people are in, uh, and, and in our own mind, we're putting ourselves down quite often and we have to work hard at that. So, mm -hmm. so let's, let's, now that we've kind of set the foundation here, let's dig into how this relates to recruiting and onboarding and leadership and all the things that we've talked about to make companies great because that's developing culture around this that that talks about, you know, what seems to be the soft skills. It seems to be, oh, we want everybody to be authentic. We want everybody to work from their strengths. We want everybody to be in the zone and, and have their unique genius and so on and so on. How do you do that? Well, you know, I'd proceed it by saying it doesn't only make personal and leadership sense, it makes business sense. It, it will return a more powerful return on investment. It will make your company more profitable. It will make sure your employees are there for the long run. So a lot of times I see people kind of coming into this from a side of almost sheepishly saying, well, you know, how can we allocate resources or time to develop our employees and to focus on these things? I would just say it makes incredible business sense and it is um, it's foundational in uh, in running great companies overall. Uh, and so this piece about um, I mean, it's pretty interesting discussion. We could do a whole other, uh, you know, podcast, I'm sure, on this of, of like, how do you um, build culture, create culture versus uh, codify culture that already exists? I think this is kind of one of the interesting things. And I would assert that the, the creation of culture 
is a breadcrumb by breadcrumb process over time. It is a combination of thousands of decisions and actions that are made and undertaken and, and moved forward. It is not an academic process of saying, what are our core values? What do we want our culture to be? And putting something forth. Of course, you can have something aspirational, but I would really say it is, it is about codifying what exists and um, for many companies, especially early stage, uh, realizing that the sum total of all of those daily decisions that you're making are defining your culture in those early years of the, co- of the company, even before you have potentially written down your core values and looked at what those are. And those are everything from how do you reject an employee that you don't hire uh, to uh, what sort of um, maternity or paternity you know, process do you have in your first year versus your 10th year as a company uh, to um, you know, just having conversations and taking time with employees. So these things feel like little day-by-day decisions, but I would say that that is building the culture. And then in the onboarding process where I work, it's kind of our job to package that all up and invite people into it, to invite people into it. And and so really, I think about this cultural onboarding piece. I I think of onboarding, first of all, as from the point you decide to hire someone through, let's say their first three months. So it's a long process. And then I divide it into two pieces, tactical onboarding. This is like, what is all the what is all the paperwork and the documents and the licenses and all those things you have to capture to get someone to work? That's really what Workbright primarily focuses on. And then there's cultural onboarding, which is how do you bring someone into the fold and create uh, a, a place of comfort so that they can be as most productive as soon as possible within the company? Yeah. So the as I've, I've taken something a little bit from retail and marketing mm-hmm. and the work that I've done with clients and said, what I want you to do just is to describe for me the perfect employee experience mm-hmm. from the moment they walk in the door yeah. to be interviewed. Okay. Uh, I, so I worked for Procter and Gamble and I can remember I, I, I was leaving the army and I went to interview with Procter and Gamble and I interviewed with four or five companies coming out of the military, have a degree in mechanical engineering. So I was able to uh, have, have a lot of opportunities and the difference with P and G was when I went to Green Bay, Wisconsin, there was a person standing at the airport waiting for me. I didn't have to get a cab. I didn't have to get, you know, I didn't have to even turn to figure out. This was before the security was there. The guy was, I knew his name. He's standing right outside the gate holding a sign up. And he says, for the next three days, I'm your sponsor. Whatever you need, I'm here. I will transport you wherever you want to go. We're going to look at, you know, I'm going to show you around the area. You know, so it was like you, you, you immediately felt this welcoming, okay, of of uh, of arriving in this organization, and I, I I picked that organization to go with for a lot of reasons. Um, what I didn't know was he was actually part of the recruiting process mm-hmm. to determine whether I'd be hired or not. Mm, interesting, because P and G used what what was called the yeah but hiring policy. <laughs> and this, I don't know if you've ever heard of this, but this yeah, but- is fascinating. So um, I interviewed with about seven people. And at the end of the second day, everybody got together and, uh, and, and would sit down and talk about Gary. How did Gary do? Uh, would, should we hire this person? And if anybody sat there and went, yeah, but, and they had a reservation, you're out. Hmm. 
one person yeah. says, yeah, but you're out. Mm-hmm. Because the, even back, this is back in the 80s, they were respectful of people's intuitive gut feel for another human being. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they had a, a way of going about that. It made the culture. Yeah. It's very interesting. And, and um, you know, the things that I'll, I'll say about that, uh, you know, th- that is their culture. That is what drew you in. And, and, you know, clearly the fact that decades later, you're still expressing the story uh, is, is just testament to the effectiveness of that, of that culture building. And, and I would say as employers, not to underestimate the power of those point in time experiences, those small little touch points, like someone showing up in the airport, like getting a, a return phone call in person as opposed to an email or a follow up card or anything like that, whatever it may be, these can be moments that these employees are going to talk about for decades to come. And I, I think also that will inform who they are as leaders as they move up. Um, you know, through the organization as well. The yeah, but but culture piece is something that I think is interesting. We've been talking about a lot in our uh, organization, which is how to make sure that we have an established culture that is one that is inclusive and that we're not using culture as a litmus test, um, but we're saying not the words how will this person be a culture fit? Meaning if they don't look like us or do like us, they're not a fit, but how will this person be a culture add? Like what will they bring to that culture overall? Um, Because a lot of us do carry around a lot of implicit biases in this, in this process. And so it's a tricky one these days to really think about how do we hire for alignment and additions to that culture, uh, but also be open and aware of our biases and how we might be filtering folks that would really be incredible culture ads uh, due to baggage that we're dragging around. Yeah. So, uh, and, and I think to your point is uh, doing, a, as I say, doing a thousand little things right. And I, and I use this quote from uh, Tom Peters, which came from Thriving on Chaos, which was his third book uh, after In Search of Excellence. And he said, uh, great companies do a thousand little things yeah. right. Yeah. And I've stolen that now to great leaders do a thousand little things right. Yeah. In my campaign around getting rid of bad bosses on LinkedIn, I talk about this all the time is, you know, bad bosses do a thousand little things wrong. Mm-hmm. And those little things can turn people off and turn them away. Mm-hmm. And uh, but that's that's why when you talk about culture, the foundation needs to be there for people to make those right decisions. And the foundation is in the mission statement, which is the purpose of a mission statement is to create boundaries around the decisions that we make. And the, the, the purpose of the value statements is how we treat each other. So in, you know, Our mission is to make good bosses into great leaders with compassion and accountability through workshops and training and development and coaching and programs. That's what we do. So when my my team comes to me and says, I want to try this new thing, I say, okay, is it part of our mission? And if it is, it's in. If it's not, it's not. It's really simple to make those decisions. Mm -hmm. Our three principles is is to uh, do what's right, you know, the, the principle of integrity, to do your best. Uh, the principle of excellence and treat others as they want to be treated, the principle of respect. So how do we treat each other every day? What's the experience in our culture every day around those values? And that way we have a point of conversation 
as a leader, if you violate one of those principles, I can go, David, it is my opinion, okay, that you said this and did this, and that is inconsistent with doing your best. Mm-hmm. I've seen better out of you. This is what I've seen in the past. Tell me what's going on. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I, I, as a leader, I might make a judgment in comparison to the principle and what I've seen, but then I'm going to give you a chance to explain what's going on because 85% of all performance problems at work are because of things outside of work. Yeah. And you might say, I've got this problem. I've got a family problem. I just lost my brother, which has happened to me mm-hmm. in these conversations. You go, oh my gosh, what can I do to help? Mm-hmm. And it changes the conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I would also assert that, um, uh, that the, that the long arc goal of leadership is to instill these things um, that we're talking about right now. So that either not around witnessing, they are happening, um, so to speak. There's a quote from the Tao of leadership that says, you know, when the, when the best leaders work is done, the people say we've done it ourselves. Uh, and it's just an interesting yeah. thing to be able to lead from the front, but also from the back, I'll share, I, I, I want to do my best to share one hour bound experience is relevant to this, which is many, many years ago, I was leading, a, 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 a as they call them patrols of about 12 students in the collegiate peaks area in Colorado on a, on a 21 day mountaineering course. Um, this is a process where as an instructor over time, you move, you provide a great deal of skill and instruction and hands-on training at the beginning. And then incrementally, you move more and more into, uh, into the, the outskirts until they come to a point called expedition where the patrol is moving on their own for several days. And it's, it's kind of a nice metaphor for work experience as well, where you're heavy up on training and, and lots of, uh, parameters, but then you're backing off till they're, um, internalized over time. And so we had, uh, climbed a peak and I was at a point where I was, um, going to leave the group. And they were going to rejoin me the next day. So this is the first point of expedition where I'm giving a, a day without my uh, tutelage, so to speak. And so we're up on a on a ridge, and um, and we're starting to drop off. And I say, okay, great. I'm going to head to the resupply. I will see you there tomorrow afternoon. And as I drop off this ridge, I leave the group, and and always kind of like a parent leaving their child. Of, you know, there's thoughts like, oh, did I equip them with everything they need? All of a sudden, I see these huge clouds start moving in overhead, and it starts to rain, and then it starts to sleet, and then it starts to snow, okay, which is just nothing that has come up on the course thus far. And I'm moving further and further away from the group with greater fear and trepidation. I get to resupply, and I have to bite my nails for a full 24-hour period. The next day, around 3 o'clock, this group comes meandering in. Clearly, something had gone down, okay? Like, there was – they looked like – there had been some, you know, some distance travel, just let's say. And I, uh, and I, and I was saying, you know, what happened? What happened? And this group was so diverse. We had a federal circuit court judge and we had a juvenile delinquent that this was his last chance before going to prison. And they were in the same group. And the, the group, uh, was very tight lipped. And finally I said, you know, what happened? And one of them said, well, you know, we came down, we were freezing. We thought we might be hypothermic. We come down off the ridge. We're about to set up a camp. And one of the participants happened to be the juvenile delinquent found a cabin and it was locked up. And he said, we're breaking in. And the circuit court judge 
stepped forward physically and said, we are not breaking in there. And they came to this face to face, like it was going to come to fisticuffs. And the whole group was there watching this unfold. And then one of the participants said, hey, everyone, let's just make a circle and talk about this. Let's figure this out. You know, And they did. They circled up and they used the tools that we had established earlier in the program to make this, uh, the decision. It's not even important to me what they decided. It was like in that moment, I knew my job as a leader was accomplished in that situation, that they had embodied that sort of process and taken it on themselves. Yeah. So uh, along with that, the, the principle is, is that you know how well you've led when people do well when you're not there. Exactly. Right. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I often ask this uh, to CEOs when I'm working with them and they go on vacation for a week and I'm like, how many phone calls did you get? And I said, because if you're going to work with me over the next couple of years, one of our goals is for you to be able to go on vacation and not get a single phone call. Yeah, I love it. And it's really interesting because for the leaders that I work with, the staff, they're OK with that for the most part. Okay. They're, they're fine. They're, they're executives. They're, they're seasoned, experienced people. They don't need that day in and day out. Mm-hmm. It's the CEO that doesn't feel comfortable with not getting the call. What's going on? Yeah. Is everybody okay? Kind of like what you were saying. You're feeling this level of trepidation, like, Oh, something new. I wonder how, how well they're going to handle this. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And if we've trained people properly, uh, both in leadership and in the technical areas, then, um, they'll be, Humans are amazing. You just give them a shot. You know? <laughs> exactly. Give them a shot. But to your point about culture is you can't allow culture to just organically happen without some leadership that's involved because it will go by way of, because here's the thing, who was the leader? You know, so you have these two people, let's break into the cabin. Let's not break into the cabin. And somebody will think that's leadership. They're, they're taking action, but oh, no, 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 no. You know who the real leader was? The person who stepped forward and said, let's circle up. Absolutely. Yeah. And you know that, mm-hmm. right? It's the person that stepped in and said, wait a minute, there's another option. Mm-hmm. And this is why in this podcast, I talk leadership is a responsibility, not a position. Mm-hmm. We all have the opportunity to speak up and state what we think is right at some time in our lives, if we have the skill to speak in a way that can be heard. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that we talk about is developing leadership skills in everybody so that their voice will be heard. Because sometimes if somebody yeah. handles it wrong and they stand between those two people in your story and they push them both away mm-hmm. and they're using violence to try to stop it, you guys can't do this. They'll just talk right over the person and it won't be effective. Mm-hmm. So not having the right skill. But I, I guess, uh, David, you did a hell of a job. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, uh- and you don't always know why, do mm-hmm. you? You just you take them through the process. And that's what we tell our leaders. In, in the work that we do in our nine month leadership program, trust the process mm-hmm. and things will just start to happen. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Agreed. So, so through all of this and the work that you do today with uh, onboarding, I guess you really, and I, this is an extremely important thing to, for retention. Mm-hmm. You talk about ROI, mm-hmm. right? Is that first, uh, I, I, talk to organizations a lot, the first 90 to 180 days determines whether people are going to stay there long-term or not. Absolutely. What do you think, talk to me about some of the work that you do and what are the keys uh, for people listening to hear about that 
that employee experience in the beginning that will help them do a better job with onboarding? Well, you know, when I think about what Workbright does, um, in some ways to the employee, we just want to disappear. We want to be frictionless uh, and on brand with the company that they're that they're heading to to join overall. So our job is to make it absolutely simple to get done whatever you need to get done so that you can get in there and have those people-to-people interactions and develop uh, the cultural awareness and really step step into your your fullest participation in the company. Um, I would say that um, in the realm of both culture and retention uh, and reducing employee churn, which is um, in the, in that first 90 days, it's the most expensive time to churn an employee because you've put all this investment and, and time into hiring and training. And if they leave early, you, you've just, you, you never recoup all of that overall. And from our experience, what we see as the most important, uh, is aligning expectations, aligning expectations is that when people leave in those first three months, it's because I thought it would be this way and it was that way instead. And so we're really advocates of being as transparent and truthful as possible, even in positions that may not seem glamorous. And this comes back to this thing that we talked about earlier about um, you know, your authentic self or your unique ability. We, in an egotistical way, tend to see ourselves as uh, the most important and really can't imagine people wanting to do things that we don't want to do. Um, and yet, all aspects of the work environment, there are people who align with those aspects and find a portion of their unique ability and authenticity in that. And so um, it is some employers try to obfuscate what a position is going to be like because they feel in their own mind, well, somebody might not like that working on their own or that manual labor or it's really dirty we send uh, the message that it's really important to fully communicate exactly what this is going to be like. Employees will come forward. They're going to be happier and they're going to end up staying with you for the long run. Oh, that's such a great point. And to, and let's take that like just one slight step forward. Once we have a team is to get away from people being assigned a role that they have to stay within no matter what, rather than turning the goal over to the team and finding out the best ways for each member of the team to bring out their their greatest strengths. And I I have to tell you, and I've, I've told this story before, but th- I learned this back when I was 26 years old. I was leaving Green Bay, Wisconsin, or 30, I guess. I was 30 years old, leaving Green Bay, Wisconsin. I had to paint my house. I don't know about you, David. I hate to paint, mm-hmm. but I had to paint it to sell it. And it really needed paint. I had a couple of young kids beating the house up, had to paint it. And I, I'm uh, complaining about this at lunch one day with a couple of my friends. And this woman says, well, why don't you have a paint party? I love to paint. <laughs> and I'm like, a paint party? What the hell is that? You know, so she tells me about this paint party, right? She, and I, So Saturday afternoon, I put the invitation out and I said, well, we'll when we're finished, we'll have beer. And it was Wisconsin. So it's brats and, you know, hamburgers and I'll feed everybody three hours and 30 minutes painted the entire house. It's great. And one of the people that painted the house with us decided that he liked it and bought it. For <laughs> that is amazing. Okay. That is a great story. Love it. Isn't that great? 
And I like to organize. I don't mind buying the paint and getting the paintbrushes and organizing the people. That part was fun. I like that. I'm a manager. I'm a leader. I like doing that stuff. But actually painting, I'd rather not. And these people, they were amazing. You had people in there. They were having fun and they finished quickly. But to your point is find people's strengths, leverage those strengths and let people cross fertilize in the workplace so that they can take on tasks. Like I love doing spreadsheets. I know other people, they hate doing spreadsheets. I'll turn them over to me. I'll do them. I'll do all the spreadsheets in the world. Yeah. So to your point is looking at strengths and people that are using, as you say, their authentic self to step up and fulfill the needs of the organization in the best way they possibly can. And productivity just will go right over the top. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I want to finish with my last question that I always ask everybody, David. And the last question I always ask is if you could write yourself a letter and send it back to David 25, 30 years ago, maybe to that person that was an outward round, maybe to that person in their first company, but what would you write to yourself? What would you say, dear David, what Mm -hmm. would the message be? I think the message would be, dear David, trust deeply in your intuition and what you know at your core. Mm. And I can reckon back upon feeling intimidated by board member, an early venture back company that I ran where I knew it was the wrong decision and was being, I mean, I don't think in his mind, it was even strong arm. He was just expressing his opinion very firmly. And I just didn't have the self-confidence to trust that I really knew the path forward. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. There's a lot of research on this that we find that with less data than we always as CEOs are making decisions with less and less data, it seems like, or there's more and more data. So it's harder to find the information that we need and trusting in our instincts, trusting in our gut, as we call it. And that's, yeah, that's a great thing for everybody, I think, (laughs) to listen to. And let's understand that it's part of the experience and wisdom of growing up Mm -hmm. that Once you go through that experience and you had that feeling and then the outcome occurs, whether it's right, wrong or indifferent, you now have a data point that you can say, okay, the next time I feel that I know what to do. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You know, I have confidence from that small 12 year old that was, by the way, I was four foot 10 as a sophomore Mm -hmm. in high school. (laughs) Okay. And then sprung up to five, six. Mm -hmm. So you and I are of similar stature. spirits. Absolutely. And to at, at such a young age to find something that people are going, wow, you're doing something that, you know, everybody else is afraid to jump from rock to rock and you're just jumping like it's nothing. Mm-hmm. Right. There's a big message in there. And I think as leaders, what we want to do is we want to be the troop leader mm-hmm. that sees that in the child, draws that out. And if they fall down, you help them up and you say, well, maybe we should do something mm-hmm. else. Let's try lacrosse. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Love it. It's okay. Mm-hmm. Let's try something else and try to find those unique talents. Mm-hmm. So, David, it's been an absolute pleasure for me as well having this conversation today. Thank you very you much. Bet. I love the conversation. Look forward to maybe again in the future. I think so. I think so. I'm Dr. Gary, making good bosses into great leaders with compassionate accountability. Thank you for listening to Leading from the Front, where leadership is a responsibility not a position. Take care, be well, and be great. Thanks for being with us on Leading from the Front with Dr. Gary McGrath. Remember to subscribe to this podcast on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. 
For more information about the work Dr. Gary is doing, visit statarius.com. S-T-A-T-A-R-I-U-S dot com. Music for Leading from the Front is provided by Peter Katz. For more of his music, visit petercats.com. <laughs>